Let us turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews. And here we are today in the sixth chapter of Hebrews. And so, if you will, open your Bibles and let us turn there. I've been preaching through this portion of Scripture for some time because there's so much here for us to learn. And so, beloved, we are going to begin our reading today in verse 4 and go through verse 10. And we'll hope we make it that far. So let us stand, please, for the reading of God's word as we believe this is God's holy word. It's his holy inspired word, and we would not take it, uh, treat it as something common, but it is God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints." Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. And Lord, we acclaim that that is the case here to one another and to the world. And so, dear Father, now please bless us as we consider your word together. Teach us from it as you have given it to us for instruction and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Lord, whatever that might be, that purpose in each person's life and heart today, may you use it for that purpose. We give you all the glory and praise now. We pray that you would please bless the meditations of my heart on this passage and bless the preaching of your word as I attempt to do so. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I believe two things are going on in these scriptures here that I've just read, one, on the one hand, the apostle has stated what must happen if people who profess to be a Christian and who have all the outward appearances of being a Christian should then turn away from it and walk away from it, and we would say apostatize from it. He tells them what must happen. They will perish. And then on the other hand, the apostle assures his audience that he is reading, that he is writing this book of Hebrews to. Remember, these were converted Jews who had come into the Christian church. And he assures them that this is not the case for them. He affirms his conviction here that this would not happen to them. He had every confidence of that. There is no inconsistency in doing both at the same time. We can warn a person that if they take arsenic, 
it's going to kill them. And we can warn them and tell them that's the case. And yet at the same time, we can have the fullest confidence that that person that we're talking to is never going to do that. And we can assure them that we believe that that is not going to be some, something that they would ever think about doing or do. And so there's no inconsistency in doing both at the same time. These verses are very clear proof, I think, that the apostle, whichever apostle it was who wrote the book of Hebrew, Hebrews here, felt that it was a certainty that a true Christian could never be lost. It is not, never going to happen, my friends, that a true Christian will ever be lost. If the apostle supposed that a true Christian and those he was writing to here who he believed were true Christians could fall away, then how could he at the same time be sure that it would not happen to them? See the, the way of thinking, the reasoning of it, it's because he believed they were true Christians. Consider with me what he says in verse 9. Look, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Do you hear how encouraging and comforting and sure he is in these words? This apostle has great assurance that those he is writing to here would not fall away and in fact could not fall away. We all understand that it is possible for a person to uh, come into a church and to have all the outward appearances, we'd say all the outward trappings of being a Christian, but they still are not. We know that that's possible to happen. And if that is the case, then that person will eventually say, that's not for me, that's not something I'm going to continue in. They will fall away. Maybe this is why this warning here is here in the scriptures. To warn people, don't let that be true about you. But a true child of God, one who God chose from before the foundation of the world, as the scripture tells us he does, and one for who the Holy Spirit regenerated their heart and gave them a new heart and a new nature, and one who was born again, born again, and one for who Christ died upon the cross for their sins. That person will never and can never commit this sin that is being spoken of here of apostasy. So we see an example here that while we assure people that if they should fall away, we assure them if they fall away, they surely will be lost forever. But we may nevertheless tell them with full conviction that they will be saved if they are in Christ, no question. But before we get to verse 9 and 10, which is where we would like to spend all of our time probably here today, let's go back to the stern warning in verses 4 through 6. It said this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. 
Last week, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these marks of a true believer that we find in verses 4 and 5. A true Christian has been enlightened. You know, the light came on so that he could understand Jesus Christ and the truth of who he is. They have tasted of the heavenly gifts and they continue to, de- to consume them and to devour them. You know, uh, what is the heavenly gift? Well, it is salvation by grace through faith in the Son of God. That's a gift, isn't it, to us from God? Salvation. And they have tasted of it, and they consume it, they devour it. And they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and they partake of the Holy Spirit's uh, influence in their lives every day. And they have tasted of the good word of God, and they don't just taste it, they devour that too. And they have experienced the powers of the age to come in seeing God's hand in their lives, you know. But as I said last week, all these things can also be true to a degree of a person who has not been saved and just appears that way because they have maybe come into a church. I believe that in these words, the apostle was referring to the generation of Israelites who had came, came out of Egypt with Moses. Think about this. They had all been enlightened, that generation that came out, remember, They saw all the plagues that God had to bring upon Pharaoh. They they went out with Moses. They saw all the things they did. We could say they had been enlightened. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. And they had been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had tasted of the good word of God. And they had tasted of the powers. They had seen miracles, amazing miracles. In their deliverance out of Egypt, they had journeyed through the wilderness and they had experienced all of those things and yet they hardened their hearts in unbelief, didn't they? And because of their disobedience, they fell away from God and they determined in their minds that they would rather go back to Egypt. We've looked at that section of scripture uh, last week. And God did not allow them into the promised land. Remember that generation. All those 20 years and older, he did not allow into the promised land, and he did not change his mind. So I think the apostle was using those Israelites as an example to show his readers in this day that he was writing this book that if they followed their example and they fell away from the Christian faith and returned back to Judaism, which some of them we're on the verge of doing, I do believe, they too would fall away from God. And if they gave up on the Christian faith and Jesus as their savior, there remained no other way of salvation for them and they too would perish. Here the apostle uses the term falling away. Look at verse six again. And then have fallen away. What he's talking about is not a person who is just kind of maybe been raised in the church and just not continued in it. No, it's different than that. This is apostasy is what he is talking about. Apostasy, my friends, is a complete rejection and disowning of Jesus Christ and the renouncing of one's faith in Christ. 
people who commit apostasy put Christ out of their lives and out of their thinking and they reject his claim to be the Son of God. In their actions and their thinkings, they do the same thing that those who got rid of Jesus did by crucifying him, you know? And when they do that, they put Christ to open shame. They put him to contempt, it says. Some versions use that word. They hold Christ up to contempt. Look what Simon Kistemacher said about this. If you take your sermon helps, you will find uh, on the back of the praise choruses there, uh, this quotation from Simon Kistemacher. He said this, the one who has fallen away declares that Jesus ought to be eliminated. As the Jews wanted Jesus removed from this earth and thus lifted him up from the ground on a cross, so the apostate denies Jesus a place, banishes him from this earth, and metaphorically crucifies the Son of God again. Thus he treats Jesus with continuous contempt and derision and knowingly commits the sin for which, says the author of the epistle, there is no repentance. Look with me at Hebrews 10, a couple of pages back here in Hebrews 10 and verse 26 and 27. I think he speaks of a similar thing here in this scripture. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So putting these together, as it says, from this sin there is no repentance. There is no other sacrifice that can be offered for their sins. And the sinner can expect God's judgment that will come upon him, as it says, as a fury of fire which will consume all of God's enemies. We know that all sin is a falling away from God. Every time we sin is, but your sins have separated between you and your God. Isaiah, you know, says that. We know that it is a falling away from God, but we also know that there is no sin that, from which we cannot repent and we cannot be forgiven of. I praise God for that. But what the, aposta apostasy, the apostasy speaks of here is not the sin. This apostasy that he is talking about here and they're falling away is not the sin of theft or, or adultery or even murder or all drunkenness, all of the sins, perjury, theft, all these things. No, it is not the sin of violating what we would say the second table of the law, you know, which tells us our duty to our neighbor. And it's not even committing the sins of the first table of the law, which is how we love God and know God if a person does that out of ignorance. No, thankfully, my friends, God graciously forgives us when we sin in any of those ways. If we break any of the Ten Commandments, there is forgiveness, there is repentance for that. You know, that doesn't give us an excuse to do that, and that's not what a Christian will do. You know, he won't live there at least. So that is not the person who has committed this sin of apostasy. 
Rather, it is the person who has tasted of the gifts of God, which were mentioned in verses 4 and 5 here, and then forsakes them, forsakes the word of God, and extinguishes the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the little light maybe that he did have, and he extinguishes it. He says, it will not have any more. Again, let me emphasize, he is speaking of a person who has enjoyed every privilege and power of the gospel, but they never had the new nature and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which seals renewed souls till the day Christ takes us home. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit that seals us until the day that Christ takes us home. A commentator said the full case, and this quote is on there as well, the full case here supposed is a thorough renunciation of Christian truth. The apostle describes a confessor with all the crowning evidences of the gospel, but not a converted man. Okay, so that's good for us to understand. Now, why does he say that for this person it is impossible to be renewed again to repentance is because for the person who rejects the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the risen and glorified Christ, there is no other provision of grace. You know, God gave repentance and remission of sins to those Jews who rejected Jesus. Many of the Jews rejected Jesus, but God still gave them repentance and they were able to, to come and confess that and come to Christ. But if they gave up on the risen Christ, indeed, there was no other provision of grace for them. Again, this particular commentator I was reading on this, Kelly Williams said this, look at your quote there. He said, those who rejected Christ in all the fullness of his grace, in other words, in seeing him in all the clarity of who he is and what he came to do, and in the height of glory in which God had set him as man before them, those that rejected him not merely on earth but in heaven, what was there to fall back on? What possible means to bring them to a repentance after that? There is none. What is there but Christ to come in judgment? That's all that's left. So now the apostle gives us an illustration in verse 7. Look here. He says, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. This is his illustration to help us understand what he has just spoken about. I think that the apostle is going back here to the, the whole idea of the parable of the sower and the seed that we heard earlier. Don't you all think that that is where he's coming from here? If he was an apostle, he was there when Jesus taught that parable of the sower and the seed, wasn't he? Here, there are two different kinds of fields that are described, okay? Uh, we would say first there is the ground or the field that drinks in the rain and it brings forth vegetation. 
There is the ground that brings forth vegetables and fruit and uh, a blessing. It's a blessing for those people that have tried to improve it, you know, who have tilled it, who have tended it. And secondly, there is a field that receives the rain also. It does too, doesn't it, from heaven. But it only brings forth weeds and briars, things that have no value to the farmer who has planted it and attended it. The analogy is very simple. The apostle says that they had to look at those uh, people who committed apostasy in the same way as the farmer looked at the two different partials of land that he has been trying to farm here. There was the ground that drank in the rain, was, that God provided it, and it brought forth a great crop. It was a blessing to the farmer. And then the farmer also continued to cultivate that because it was a blessing to him. But in the case of the plot of land that also received the rain and in spite of all the care and the attention that the farmer has given to it, it produces nothing but weeds and briars. It says it is close to being cursed and it ends up being burned with fire. You see, beloved, what he was talking about here was the practice when he says it was to be burned with fire. Now, back in those days, they didn't have Roundup. They didn't have pesticides or herbicides, they call herbicides, I guess, right? They didn't have any way to go in there and to clean up that field that's just full of briars. So what did they do? They burned it. You see, this was their practice. This is what farmers did in those days to a field that was infested, we would say, with just noxious weeds. They were burned in hopes of killing off the thistles, and they were burned because they were no good for anything. And maybe also they didn't want those weeds spreading over into the good field that was producing for them. I think his point is if men burn, if this is the case, if this is what we do in this world, if men burn the infested, unproductive fields, then those people who become spiritually infested with apostasy will also be in danger of God's judgment. You see, I hope I've clearly defined what apostasy is and defined it differently from any other sin. I hope that that's the case. I believe it is the case that the apostle is showing the consequences of not making a proper use a proper use of all the privileges that Christians have been given and to what will happen to those who are not going to be improved, let's say. He says, it's like the earth. If the land absorbs the rain and produces an abundant harvest of good vegetables, then it receives the blessing of God. And if not, it is cursed or it is worthless. So I think the point is, if a person has an appearance of just, just an appearance of being a Christian, but they become like the, the barren land that produces no good fruit, then they will also be cast away and lost. We could go to that great parable also in Matthew 7 that speaks of the tree that bears good fruit opposed to the tree that does not bear good fruit. You will know them by their fruits. You know, he says. Notice it says here that this land receives regular, regular rains. Look at verse 7. For grounds that drink 
the rain which often falls on it. So you see, there's nothing wrong with the amount of water that is getting. The apostle, the apostate, excuse me, is, is like the land that has no excuse but to produce a good crop, you know. The land described here is not like much of the land that we have here in the Southwest where it rarely receives rain. How here in the Southwest, land that, you know, we can go five, six, seven, eight weeks sometimes without receiving a drop of rain. I know that uh, it is the case uh, in my own garden that my plants will die pretty much if I don't water them every day. It's that critical in, in our land. But do you know what will survive, it seems like? It's the weeds. My tomato plants won't survive it, but the weeds will, doggone. Well, the apostate that this is speaking of is the person who had all the blessings of God available to him or her, but they produced worthless fruit for God instead. In the parable of the sower, we have much of the same thing going on. We have the hard path which received the seed, but the seed was stolen away by the birds of the air, as it said. It never took root. It never developed. We all have met people who have, we've maybe told them about Jesus, or they've heard about Jesus, and yet they have no response, no interest whatsoever. It doesn't penetrate. And then we have the rocky soil in that uh, proverb there where the seeds sprang up. But the problem was it was in rocks and it didn't have place to put down roots. And therefore, when the sun came out, those plants uh, withered and they died. In contrast this to, to the rocky soil, we have the good soil, don't we? The good soil that could soak in where, where, the, where the water soaked in. That's what we all wish that we had, don't you? you? Some of you are gardeners here, and don't you sometimes wish you could go get some really good soil and replace all that sandy stuff that you try so hard to make stuff grow in? And so it was not like the hard, rocky land where the water just ran off because it was all rocks. But now let's get, get back for a moment to this idea of the rocky soil. There are the people, these are the people who hear the word of God with gladness and they quickly, uh, there's a quick spurt of life, you know. It comes up fast, but again, because they don't have the ability to put down, or they don't put down roots, when things get hot, then, or things become more attractive, then they wither and they die away. And let us not forget there is also the third scenario here, too, of that seed that fell among thorns. That's not a place where you would ever want to be either because it grew up, but it was choked by all the weeds and it never bore the fruit, you know. I believe the seed that fell on the rocky place, places in that parable of the sower here was especially the group that is being referred to here in Hebrews. And it would be best, be the best description of those who committed apostasy, is the rocky soil. A person who comes and hears about the things of God, and there is a lot of enthusiasm and zeal 
for the things of God, but there is no depth and there's no root. That's why the apostle in the Hebrews here keeps telling them, put down those roots. You know, press on to maturity. Press on to maturity here. Put down those roots so that when that storm comes, my friends, the storms of life, that there's no way that person's going to fall away. But then, again, there is the good soil, beloved. The soil that is deep with earth that drinks in the rain. And this is a description of the truly saved person. You know, in that parable of the soils, there's only one true description of a Christian there. The other three are not. Again, look with me at verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. A good case can be made, I think, that the apostle here meant to apply this to the Jewish nation in general who rejected Jesus. The Jewish nation was so blessed by the ministry of Jesus, he came to his own, you know. They saw his miracles. They were enlightened by the preaching that he did among them as he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom of God. They tasted of the benefits of the heavenly gift, the Christian religion that was established among them, you know, they were blessed by the disciples of Jesus as they continued to proclaim the gospel to them. And then they saw some of their own relatives, maybe some of their own children, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, you know? And they tasted of the good word of God. Many of their lame were healed, you know? Many of their people that were possessed with demons because that was even more rampant in those days than anything we know of today. They were delivered, and they saw the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that God, that he, that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. A descendant would come from Abraham who would be a blessing to the Jewish people, but also to all the nations. They saw all of that, my friends. And even they confessed, even the Jews, remember when they said, never had a man spoken as this man, when they heard Jesus preach. They confessed that that was the case and even said, according to his miracles, that no man could do these things unless God were with him. They said that. And after having followed Jesus by, by the thousands, because many did follow Jesus for three years while he preached and he was on this earth, my friends, they fell away from him. They went back to what they knew. They went back to Judaism. They crucified him who even in his sufferings, they said, you know, crucify him, crucify him. They crucified him even in his sufferings as well as his resurrection demonstrated that he was the son of God. So they experienced a time of miracles that was even greater. I think that generation that, that rejected Jesus when Jesus was on this earth saw even more miracles than their forefathers saw who came out of Egypt. And you know how many miracles they saw? 
Most many of you know I preached through the book of Exodus years ago, and we looked at all those great miracles. What a great thing it was to see all those. I think this generation here had even seen more of the miracles of God. And yet, in the end, they endeavored to make Jesus a public example uh, of one who they would crucify, a false testimony. And though as a people they had received so much cultivation from Moses and then the prophets and then John the Baptist, we could list them all, and Jesus, the Son of God himself, and yet they bore only bad fruit. You see the analogy that he's making, how it, how it identifies them here. They bore only bad fruit and pride and unbelief and hardness of heart and contempt for the Son of God. They were, as verse 8 says, worthless and close to being cursed. And they were at about to be cast off from God's divine protection. I, I kind of like the idea there that they were close to being cursed. In other words, if they were still living and breathing oxygen, maybe they could still repent of that. And they could be forgiven. Yes. Well, my friends, I think that is the case here. We just see this great contrast of the good field or the good ground that brought forth the good produce and that which did not. Here, I think, is the description of the faithful followers of Jesus, though, this good ground that he speaks of, which, where the rain often falls and it brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. This is a good description of those who do follow, follow the Lord, walk in his ways. Notice in verse 7 it says, it brought forth vegetation useful to the one who tilled it. Who tilled it? Well, it was God who tilled it. He's the one. And look at the blessing. It receives a blessing from God. That would be, again, those faithful Hebrew believers who he is writing to in all these things. But now look at the good news we have in verse 9 that he says to this same audience that he's given this warning to. Listen, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. I want you to notice there, he begins, says, but beloved. I didn't realize, you know, I use that word a lot when I preach. That's just my way, because I love you all. I truly do. But the word beloved is only used here in the book of Hebrews. This is the only time he uses that, that way of addressing them. It is precisely after the sternest passage we can imagine that he uses this endearing address of love. It's almost as if he is saying, if I had not loved you so much, I would not have spoken to you so harshly. I would not have spoken. I would not have told you those things. But it's because I love you. 
So he has spoken the truth, but we would like to say it this way. He spoke it in love, you see. And he did so because he didn't mean to imply that they were that bad field that would only produce bad crops. No, they were the good field. Indeed, they were. So with this address, beloved, I believe he softens what he had just got through saying and warned them that would happen to those who did commit apostasy, you see. Here he lets them know that he has every confidence in their profession of faith. He lets them know that he trusts that they are true Christians because he has seen the evidences of it in their lives. In, in fact, he speaks of the good fruit that they bear. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. See, he, he mentions those things. This was the good fruit. This was good fruit in anybody's book, wasn't it? What he mentions in verse 10. These were evidences of their salvation. So he says, we are convinced of things that will, we are convinced that you are not in that category and we are convinced of things that will accompany salvation. We don't just have salvation. We have many, many blessings that accompany our salvation, my friends. But for now, beloved, we have to end here. And it is good for us to know that if God has rescued us and saved us out of darkness, if he has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, then all these blessings that were true of the Hebrew believers are true about us as well. If we are God's people, seeking to glorify God in our lives and walk according to God's ways, then we too are going to receive such a great blessing from God and we too are going to be blessed with salvation and not just salvation, but with all the things that accompany salvation as well. We'll talk more about some of that next week. So we can and we should Think of ourselves, if you are in Christ today, as that good field that he describes here that drinks in the rain. Drink it in every day, beloved. Drink it in every day. And then seek to bear fruit unto God. And how do we do that? We just seek to glorify God in everything that we do. Make everything that we do unto God's glory, you know? Remember that first catechism question that we always go back to? What is the chief end of man? That's together. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's all we need to do, beloved. Drink in that rain. Drink in God's word. And then seek to glorify God. And always remember, it will only be by God's help and with God's help that you will be able to do this. Always say, I can't do this in my own strength. This is not possible. Always say with the apostle what he says in verse 3 of chapter 6. And this we will do if God permits, with God's help. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you, dear Lord, that we have the contrast here, but we have the warning also. May this warning be heeded if 
there is any that here that needs that, needs to hear that warning, help it to, help it to, to remind all of us of, of our need, Lord, uh, to walk with you earnestly in our lives, to put down those roots in our faith. So, Lord, we thank you that it is by your strength and in your power that we can do these things. So now please bless us as we go forth today and in this week to be your people, to glorify you, and Lord, to enjoy you forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.